Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all, long, all day long. For day and night my hand was, upon, was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where, when you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are, you are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many other sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him no darkness. there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and have the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. This is the word of God. We are uh, talking this month about prayer, different types of praying. One sort, like the Lord's Prayer uh, we looked at last week, is supplication. It's petition, asking for things of one sort or another. Uh, another sort of prayer, which we're going to look at next week, is adoration, where we praise God for who he is. We don't ask him for anything. We don't confess anything. We just tell out about him, like we sang in that hymn this morning. And today, we're going to look at a third kind of prayer, confession. Some people try to keep track of different ways of praying with the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and you probably should make it lacts, L standing for lamentation, at least five different types of prayer in the Bible. We're only going to look at three of them this uh, month, uh, but uh, so we're looking, as I say, at, um, at confession today. Uh, we're going to talk about walking in the light, about admitting to the truth about ourselves where it is unsavory truth. There's truth about ourselves which is wonderful and, and uh, life-giving. God says all sorts of wonderful things about us, but there's also stuff about us which is unsavory, which is unpleasant. And confession has to do with facing up to that stuff and dealing with that stuff. Cover-ups make good news copy, 
And there are numerous reasons for this, I suspect. Uh, there's a part of us uh, that is drawn towards evil. This is a, not a very good reason. We want to hear about the dirt because part of us is sort of interested in dirt. But there is another, a nobler part of us that wants justice. We read about cover-ups, the exposing of false narratives with interest because we want things to be put right. We are, and we know that we can, they cannot be put right until the truth is known about what actually happened. And so it could be uh, dealt with. This cry for justice is a really good thing. It reflects the image of God in us all. But there is a certain irony in our outcry for the truth because it tends to be uneven. We all want justice as long as the justice does not adversely apply to us, as long as we aren't the ones being probed. We get worked up when other people cover up, but we prefer to keep our own dark material, our own mixed motives, the less ideal behavior in us hidden. We like to hide it from ourselves. We like to hide it from God, which is ridiculous because he sees it. And we like to hide it from each other. And Psalm 32, which was just read to you, and 1 John 1 say, don't do that. <laughs> don't hide. Don't cover up. Stop covering up. It will only do you harm. Or to put the matter uh, positively, confess, that is, face the truth about what's wrong, and it will do you an enormous amount of good. Psalm 32, uh, verse 2 says, Blessed, happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, who openly admits when he or she is wrong. That is, a, that is the gateway, that's the roadway, that's the pathway to happiness. It's the pathway to blessedness. That's what Psalm 32 says. And John says in 1 John uh, 1, if we confess our sins, if we confess, look what happens. He's not going to skewer us. He's not going to destroy us. We're told that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in the light of this form of prayer, confession, I want to say three things. Number one, talk a little bit about how we hide from the, tr the truth, some of, the, some of our techniques for hiding. Uh, number two, uh, uh, that we tend to focus on symptoms and circumstances. Uh, I'm sorry, number two, why? I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Um, why should we come clean? Uh, why is it so important to come clean? And number three, how God forgives those, how he's able to forgive those who stop hiding. So those three things. Here's the first one how we hide from the truth, from the dark truth about ourselves. I'll mention two of the most common strategies for doing that. We blame shift, number one, and number two, we focus on our symptoms and circumstances rather than our culpability. Let's look at both of those things as part of um, how we hide from the truth. First of all, we blame shift. It tends, not always, but it tends a good bit of the time to be the other person's fault. Or it tends to be our circumstances' fault. Now this practice is very, very, very old. It goes way, way back. When confronted about his disobedience, Adam in the garden said these remarkable words, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Genesis 3. In a single 
breathtaking sentence, Adam manages to blame both his wife and then God for his disobedience. That's what we call blame shifting. When our daughter, Sarah, was a girl, she and I used to fight. We were, I guess, so much alike that we would uh, bump into each other and we'd have fights. One day I felt constrained because I'm so spiritual to confront her about her self-absorption, so I sought and found an opportunity to do so. But just before I began to speak, she said, Dad, you know, you really are pretty self-absorbed. And the evidence she then cited proved her to be absolutely right. Now, this encounter reminded me of two things. Number one, it's easy and our natural tendency to be the other person's watchdog. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. So that's the first thing. We're, we are really good at being other people's watchdogs rather than our own. And, and the second thing is, the things that bother us in other people are very often the things in ourselves that we don't quite see, that we refuse to admit to. Now, I have been watching the hearings of the Congressional Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection. At moments, I have grown quite angry over the crimes that have been alleged and even angrier at the likelihood that justice will not be done. And then I have had to rein in my indignation with some questions. I find myself asking myself, have I never spun a story so that I could look better? Or another question, have I never overreacted to an offense or an alleged injustice? Or another question I ask myself, are not those uh, being accused, those who are sort of in the trial of public, um, uh, uh, public adjudication, are they not fellow Americans? Are they not part of my tribe, part of my national tribe if I'm an American? If I'm going to take the credit for America's good points, must I not also assume at least some responsibility for her bad points? I'm either in this country or I'm not. I'm not allowed to be in it when it looks good and not in it when it looks bad. This is my country. I belong to this country. Lock, stock, and barrel. I have to deal with, own the reality of my, of my country. Now, I'm not suggestion, suggesting that we ought not to pursue justice in our examination of January 6th. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that we should, be, we should do so humbly, alert to the ways that our own particular forms of darkness are very often mirrored in the darkness that we see elsewhere, and there in particular. So, here's my little takeaway for you. Next time somebody's behavior or attitude makes you furious. It might be an attitude, behavior, or words of, of a spouse or a friend or a colleague. Ask a good friend, a friend who loves you, who doesn't want to skewer you, but ask a good friend to help you see how you might exhibit the same thing, or at least something somewhat like the very thing that you're being upset about. Now, it may be that you don't, but I think the chances are pretty good that if you're really mad, it's like David was mad when Nathan told him the story about the, the guy who had uh, stolen the sheep and killed the sheep of this poor guy who only had one sheep. It's because you're there 
in that story, in that, in that behavior that you really don't like. So covering up, that's one of the ways in which we hide from the liberation that comes from being honest about what's wrong with ourselves. Here's another thing. We cover up secondly by focusing, or at least tending to focus on symptoms and circumstances exclusively. And let me uh, talk about that. The psalmist was groaning all day long, verse 3. His bones wasted away, he talks about that also in verse 3. And his strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer, he talks about that in verse 4. He was sick, he was exhausted, and he was miserable. But the essent those were real problems in his life, there's no question about that. But the essential problem was none of those things. Those were symptoms. Those were outcomes of other things. They were symptoms of some unnamed sin. We don't know what the sin was from the psalm. For him to have said, Lord, deliver me from my groaning and my weakness, would have been, and to stop there, would have been to seek treatment for the symptoms alone, like taking Tylenol-3 to mask the symptoms of a tumor. Healing began to come for this man only when he started to admit where he had sinned. Verse 5. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that every sickness is a symptom of some sin. No, please don't hear me say that. Paul's thorn in the flesh in 1 Corinthians 12, was permitted by God as a protection against sin, not as a chastening for sin. Nor am I saying that it is wrong to treat symptoms. Sometimes our sinful patterns, including our lying about them, can lead to an anxiety that is so severe <laughs> that we need to take a pill or a couple of pills to settle down enough to begin to address the reality that's in our lives. And God is not against you doing that. I've had to do that. He's not against it. What I am saying is that we must take care not to be satisfied by diagnosing and treating symptoms alone. Because that can be a form of cover-up. It can be a form of hiding from the unsavory things about ourselves that we need to face. Consider a couple of examples of this. We're often content to say, for example, I was rude to you because I was stressed out from work. Which is true, but when we might do better or at least as well to ask ourselves, why did I permit work to stress me out that much? Why did I permit work to stress me out so much that I hurt somebody that I love? Why did I do that? What false or fickle God have I put my hopes in at work? Or another illustration is often we're content to do whatever it takes to feel better. Feeling better is the most important thing to do with our lives. We're in a therapeutic culture right now, and feeling better is the great nirvana. That's what we have to do. We have to do whatever it takes just to feel better. And we'll do whatever it takes, escaping into work, escaping into medication, escaping into pleasure or entertainment, or into our iPhones, rather than face up to the patterns of cruelty or neglect, self-absorption, or mistrust that have made us emotional wrecks. So, if we are miserable, 
If we are despondent, if we are sick, by all means pray for healing and relief. God is not a sadist. Please don't think he's a sadist, never happy except when we're miserable. Um, But at the same time, pray more deeply. Pray something like this in the midst of these hard things that are happening to you. Dear Father, for my own good, please show me my transgressions and not just my miseries. I see them, but I need to see the other stuff. I am not asking to be beat up by false guilt. No, Father, protect me from false guilt. But I am asking for light from you on what is actually amiss in my life. Father, I want to walk in the light, as John puts it in 1 John. Show me, if this is the case, it may not be, but show me, Father, if it's the case, how I am like the horse or the mule in verse 9 of verse 32, without understanding which must be curbed with bit or bridle or it will not stay near you. And if this is so, if I'm just being stubborn, if I'm not dealing with stuff, if I'm behaving like a mule, show me and help me to admit it so that I can draw close to you in that honesty. Of one thing we can always be sure, there will always be something to confess. (laughs) Let's just face it. Because there's always something that is not yet what it should be in us and about us. There is always something to confess. John reminds us in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if confession is not a regular part of how we pray, If the big C is not there in the ACTS, the LACTS practices of our lives, if it's not a part of our prayer life, then we are living a lie at least part of the time. And we need to get out of that. We need to get, stop, we need to stop lying because it does us no good. Why, here's the second thing I want to talk about. Why is confessing so important? I sort of already started to hint at it, but let me go at that very directly. Why is confessing, why is it so necessary for confession to be a regular part of how we pray, of how we relate to God? Why is it so important? To put the matter another way, why is the principal contrast, look carefully, why is the principal contrast in Psalm 32 and in 1 John 1 not between being good and being bad, but between being honest and being dishonest. Why is that the principal contrast? And here's the answer. Because Christianity is at heart a relationship. Christianity is not a Peloton workout. It's not an ethical checklist. It's not about doing the right thing and keeping your nose clean and making sure you get all everything checked off. Which is why John wrote in verses 6 and 7 in 1 John 1, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And then in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice that word twice, fellowship. Behavior matters. It does matter to God. It's not that God is indifferent to behavior. It matters. But essentially because 
It either enhances or it compromises fellowship. It either enhances or compromises communion with God and other people. God has made us for him and for each other. For love, in other words, he wants us to thrive in community rather than to languish in solitude. Solitary confinement, whether imposed by a jailer or imposed upon yourself, by, is, a, is a miserable, miserable place to be as a human being. And God never met it to be that way for us. We reflect God's longing for communion in our parenting. What grieves a good parent most deeply and what can destroy a family is not that a child breaks rules. It's not essentially that. That is grievesome, uh, grievous uh, to us, yes, but that such rule breaking is often done secretly. That's the problem and can lead to a whole life of, de of deception in which genuine interaction over issues that really matter becomes increasingly impossible, increasingly difficult, or is vigorously resisted. What grieves a good parent, in other words, most deeply is distance. It's not wrongdoing. It's distance. They love their kids. They want their kids in the family circle. They want honesty, openness. They, they want to be able to work through stuff with their kids. They don't want the kids to hide from them if they're good parents. And it's the same way with God. God is modeled in the behavior of good parents in this way. He doesn't just want us to be good. I, sometimes we, we, we really fall into thinking that. We really think that Christianity is about being good. And it's not. <laughs> of course he wants us to be good. But he doesn't just want us to be good. He doesn't essentially want us to be it. He wants us. Period. Full stop. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us to be with him, sharing our lives with him and with each other. He wants, verse 7, Psalm 32, to surround us with songs of deliverance, his own joyful songs and those of our friends. He wants to be, verse 7, our hiding place, the place we can safely go to and hide. He longs for that. He wants that for us. He wants, verse 10, to surround us. Notice the word surround occurs twice, verse 7 and again in verse 10. He wants to surround us with his unfailing love. He wants us fully inside the family circle. But these good things will not happen in our experience if we are hiding from him, if we are lying, if certain parts of our lives are off limits to him, if we insist on making excuses or spinning our stories so that we can avoid admitting when we are wrong. Let me put it this way, same thing, but just put it in a slightly different way. Of course, God sees every, everything. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous and absurd to think that you or I could hide from him. I mean, Adam's hiding in, from God in the garden. What did he think was going on? Who did he think God was? It's absurd to think we could hide from him. So that's one reason why hiding is so stupid. It's absurd. It's a, it's a pointless endeavor. But that isn't enough for God, the fact that he knows everything, that he can see everything. He wants a relationship. 
one in which we readily admit to what he already sees. Which is why God speaks as he does in verse 9. You know, verse 9, up to verse 9, it's the psalmist talking. After verse 9, suddenly it's, it's the psalmist talking again. But verse 9, suddenly, boom, God who's been listening in to this whole kind of meditation by the psalmist, God suddenly breaks in. And we have God speaking in the first person. And this is what he says to the psalmist and what he says to you and me. He says, please, please, dear ones, don't be like a mule. Don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. God is saying, I don't want to have to box you in. I don't want to have to use circumstances to force conformity or protection. I want you willingly to seek me out for direction. I want you willingly to seek me out for help and for forgiveness. And this means that you have to be honest with me. That's what he's saying. Don't be a mule. Be a person <laughs> and relate to me. So come clean, come home, face the truth. Things will be right, lovely, joy. You notice the jo there's so much joy in Psalm 32. It starts with joy and it ends with joy. There's so much joy to be found when we're honest, when we come. It's transformational. If we do, God will gather us safely to himself and shout out for joy like the shepherd in the parable who brings the lost sheep home on his shoulders. Now, I have one, one more thing I want to say, but I am almost about to fall asleep because it's so hot. And maybe you are too. So would you stand up before I say the last? Stand up, stretch, you know, say hi to somebody, give a back rub if, it's, uh, if it makes sense. Don't if it doesn't make sense. Aerobics, you know. Okay? Yeah, turn your head just a little bit to see your head. Okay, all right, that's good. All right, okay. Have it. Sit back down. Here's the third thing I want to talk about. Why? Why? The correlation. In other words, why does simply confessing to doing wrong things and having wrong attitudes and so on. Why does the mere act of confessing make things all right? Why does it suddenly make things all right? After all, even if Hitler confessed to the Holocaust with sorrow, the people he slaughtered would still be dead. Even if you confessed to wrecking the family car, the car would still be wrecked. So how do we deal with the fact that our sin creates messes? It creates damage. It doesn't just disappear. So why the correlation between merely confessing and then being welcomed by God so thoroughly? Now, Psalm 32 does not answer that question. It doesn't answer it. Um, it declares that God covers the sins of those who end the cover-up um, but it doesn't explain how God is able to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us why God chooses to do it. My wife, the scientist, is fond of pointing out that correlation is not causation. 
right? All you scientists out there, you know what I'm talking about. Correlation is not causation. The correlation between my confessing to God and God's wholehearted welcome to me is there in Psalm 32, but what is the cause of it? What is the causation? What is the basis of it? And the cause, the basis, is found in Jesus' own very strange relationship to Psalm 32. Jesus knew this psalm, and Jesus, in some ways, is reflected in this psalm, and, uh, and in, but in some ways, his experience is contrary to the psalm. Now think about it. Uh, to put the matter simply, Jesus had nothing to confess because he never sinned, and yet all the terrible things described in Psalm 32 for those who don't confess and deal with their sin, those things happened to him. Weird. Let me unpack that a little bit. Jesus never had to confess sin. Jesus walked in the light, 1 John 1, 7, every day of his lovely life. He is the one human being whose spirit was perfectly without deceit, Psalm 32, verse 2. He was the one human being who was completely righteous and upright in heart, in every motivation, every deed, every act, but every motivation as well, Psalm 32, verse 11. Jesus never needed to be controlled by bit and bridle. He was never a mule. He never behaved like a horse, verse 9, because his heart was always soft towards his father, which is why he said in John 4, my bread, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me. That was his will. That was his food, his whole life, even up to the very bitter end. Jesus trusted God day and night, uh, and day in and day, uh, uh, calling forth the Lord's unfailing love, verse 10, in response. In other words, all the cries of faith and devotion, which we find in Psalm 32, words that ring only partly true when you and I say them, if we're honest, rang like pure crystal when Jesus said them. And yet, and here's the strange thing, all the terrible things that fall to people who sin and don't come clean about it happened to him, especially at the end of his life. Though he had no unconfessed sin, having none to confess, he still experienced the heavy hand of God that's talked about in verses 3 and 4. He groaned, didn't he? He groaned as his life wasted away on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, verse 4. He cried out from the cross, I thirst. His strength failed him. Though Jesus was godly and prayed, verse 6, all the time, the rush of great waters, also verse 6, rose up and overwhelmed him in the flood of shameful death. And though his whole life, and even at the bitter end, he had made God his hiding place, verse 7, he was not preserved. He was not Preserved, as verse 7 says, happens to those who make the Lord their trust. He was exposed to pain and ridicule. There were no shouts of deliverance at the end, verse 7. No shouts of deliverance coming from God. There was only laughter, curses, and a silent heaven. Nothing. 
Why? I hope you, I hope you know the answer, but if you don't, let me tell you. Let me remind us all of the answer. Because Jesus was your substitute in both righteousness and in curse. He was my substitute. He was our substitute. He was our stand-in, swapping lives with us, swapping outcomes with us, swapping moral records with us. Think about it. When we say that our sins have been covered by God, verse 1, what are we actually saying? We are saying that we are like homeless people, ripe in our filthy rags, our filthy clothing, over whom God has fitted a lovely new set of sweet-smelling garments, a wedding gown, if you will. And the New Testament tells us that those clothes come from Jesus who knit them together stitch by stitch over a lifetime of obedience and love. On Good Friday, Jesus put on our clothes. That's why he suffered all the curses related to unconfessed sin in verse 32. And he gave us his clothes, which is why the promises can still hold true for you even though you are not yet the person you're supposed to be and will one day be. We celebrate this lovely swap, particularly his covering of us, every time we sing before the throne of God above. You ever, you know that song? I think you know it. L listen to the words of the final stanza. We're, we're, we're being asked to look up and behold him. And it says, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. He is my righteousness. His beauty, his moral beauty, covers over my rags. Behold him there. Look at him there. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, united with him in his life, united with him in his death, one with himself, I cannot die because I've been united with him by faith. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid. Oh, I love that word, hid. That's verse 7. You are my hiding place. He has become our hiding place. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And then think also with joy and relief about the mysterious consolation in John's words in 1 John 1.9. I wonder whether you've ever read 1 John 1.9 very carefully and thought about each phrase. It goes like this. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, secondly, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying if we confess the sins we know of, and I only know just a tiny bit of the sin in my own life. I only know a little bit of it. I only stand a little bit of it. If we confess the sins we know of, God not only forgives those sins, but he also forgives everything else as well. He covers all righteousness. Why? This happens because God delights to put honest people, not perfect people, honest people, into his son. He delights to put honest people under the protection of his son. He delights to hide us with his son on high, covering us from every accusation, however just, through the life 
and the death of Jesus. So I hope you can begin to understand how this works. Confession leads to restored communion with God not because it earns me anything. Not even my confessions are perfect. They, they miss out on all sorts of stuff and they're, they're never sorry enough. You know, just think about it. But confession leads uh, to restored communion with God not because it earns us anything, but simply because it is one of the ways we get to access the benefits of somebody else's moral beauty, the moral beauty of our Savior, of our Lord, of our brother, of our bridegroom that covers us like a wedding garment. Jesus is the cause behind the correlation. When you come clean with God and God races down the hill and grabs you up in his arms and swings you around and brings out the fatted calf, he does it with all his heart, not because your turning around was all that pure, but because his son has already gone there and has paid for all that you have done wrong. He's just waiting to take you back on the basis of what his son has done. So, verse 7, say it to Jesus. Look at verse 7, if you got it before you. It says, you, Jesus, are my hiding place. I don't need to hide anymore. You, Jesus, preserve me from trouble. You, Jesus, surround me with your own shouts of deliverance. Isn't that cool? Jesus surrounds me with his shouts of God, Jesus doesn't say, okay, you can come home. Jesus goes, wahoo! It's Jesus who couldn't be more delighted, couldn't be more joyful at, at the sinner who comes home. He loves us that much. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing a solo. I want you to join me. I want, you to, I want you to, if you can remember that verse from before the throne, uh, before the, the throne of God, um, uh, sing it with me, okay? Uh, let's stand. You need to stand and just sing. Da, 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 dum, bum, ba, da, dum. That's the tune, all right? And behold him there, the risen lamb. Third stanza. If, you know, mumble along or just listen to me, but try to sing it if you can remember it, even if it's only part. Here it goes. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his Let's pray. Life, Lord Jesus, um, you are our Savior. You are our righteousness. We are covered by your life. We are forgiven by your death. For these things, Lord, we are so grateful. We don't deserve them, but they are real and they are true. And they give us hope that we can be honest with you. So help us to do that wherever Wherever you're putting your finger right now 
on us individually. We're each different. We each have different stories. Please help us to stop fighting you. Help us to say, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. We pray this for our own good. We pray it for your glory. Amen.